2: Hey, this is Annie.
3: And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Today's classic is in part brought to you based on our conversation we had around um, J.K. Rowling. And if you remember at the end of 2019, one of the things that was trending on Twitter was TERF, right. which is Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminist. So we thought it would be a good idea to, to bring this episode back, this episode looking into to what that means, all that entails, after we had our conversation around our first update of right. 2020 and, and problematic women. Yeah, so we hope you enjoy. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hello, welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. This week, Kristen and I are taking a hard look at basically straight feminism's LGBT problem. Today, so specifically, we are talking about trans-exclusionary radical feminists. Now, TERF, as is the acronym for that uh, is considered a slur by some and it's considered just a neutral descriptor by others, particularly the person who coined the term back in 2008. But we will get into all of that in just a moment. But last time on the show, we introduced the idea of radical feminism and the lavender menace. And so today's episode is building off of that. But So, Kristen, could you give us a little refresher on what the lavender menace is?
4: Yeah, so the lavender menace was a term coined by Feminine Mystique author and President of National Organization of Women, Betty Friedan, to describe her discomfort with feminists aligning themselves with radical feminist lesbians at the time because she was very concerned about the credibility of second-wave feminism and considered lesbians a potential threat to that because the rampant homophobia of the time um, and the you know still persistent stereotyping of feminists maintained that Women who advocate for gender equality are really just man hating lesbians. And so she thought that this so called lavender menace might inhibit mainstream feminism from moving forward, to which those radical lesbian feminists that she was so scared of essentially took it on as their mantle, saying, Mm -hmm. okay, we will reclaim this term, we will become the lavender menace. And we will fight against this, fighting against essentially the people who they should be building a coalition with. And that did end up happening. I mean, Betty Friedan came back and and later said that she was wrong. Uh, The National Organization of Women and other feminist organizations at the time um, and also people like Gloria Steinem publicly stood up for the needs and recognition of lesbians. But it really gets to, like you said, this lingering still shortcoming when it comes to white, cisgender, straight,
0: feminist, being more inclusive. But if we zero specifically in on those radical feminists, particularly radical lesbian feminists of the 1970s, of second wave feminism, there was really a push to embrace lesbianism. And I know that sounds really weird, but we we did touch on it in our last episode, not just being a lesbian, uh having relationships with women, but literally embracing the lesbian non-man <laughs> involved lifestyle. Um even going so far as for straight women to embrace political lesbianism as a way to fight the patriarchy. And so part of this more radical radical feminist outlook was that even bisexual or pansexual women are the enemy because they're literally sleeping with the enemy. How can you be a true feminist fighting for true equality and liberation if you're having sex with men? They were also turning their backs on butch lesbians, considering them an unhealthy mirroring of male privilege or patriarchal sex roles. And they maintain that women are basically perfect and that true love can only exist between women. And it's this focus on true womanhood, in quotes, that often ignored class and race issues, but it totally barred trans women.
4: Yeah, and like we said, we did an entire episode on this chapter of uh, women's liberation in the 70s and 80s last time. So if you want a more in-depth look at that, then definitely listen to the Lavender Menace podcast episode that came out earlier this week. But today we're going to focus in on the contemporary transphobia within some radical feminist circles and how this also reflects more broadly on how people think about feminism today and what radical feminism means.
0: And so people might be wondering, people who aren't familiar with the issue, might be wondering, why would you bar trans women from feminism? And it ha- it's directly descended from those ideas that anything that could potentially be aligned with manhood, masculinity, men in general, is considered a negative because, like I just said, that whole idea of true womanhood was so critical to some of these radical feminist groups. And so the reasoning behind excluding trans women from the feminist movement was that trans women, they argued, are biologically male and are just masquerading as women, or they're parodying women. And the idea that they'll never truly understand what it means to be a woman. They were not socialized as women. They didn't face the same types of oppression that biological women face. And so they end up saying, hey, you were born a man. I consider that you are always a man.
4: And these circles, these old-school turf circles, were certainly alive and well in the 1970s uh, but we're really going to talk about what's going on today especially because when you look at criticisms of feminists it usually is the you, you know the the turf label that gets tossed around a lot of mm-hmm. like oh well feminism today is wrong because you're not really advocating for gender equality because you have some of these Radical feminists out here who are misandrists, who want nothing to do with men, who are, and that is not equality at all. So, this is, I think, an important clarifying conversation to have to (laughs) narrow down who TERFs really are Mm -hmm. in terms of being a small segment of the feminist spectrum and how they are even distinct from radical feminists and how radical feminists are even distinct from,
0: would we say, what, lowercase f (laughs) feminists? Yeah. And I mean, I think it's important. Sometimes it goes without saying, but it is important to revisit the idea that, yes, feminism does have many, many branches. It is a tree with many, many branches, not all of which... Overlap and get along with each other. Yeah.
4: By the same token, too, I think it's important to frame this conversation away from the catfighty mm-hmm. angle that tends to be um, very <laughs> attractive to the media of like, mm-hmm. oh, look, feminists are fighting with each other again. And I really don't want to present this conversation of oh, these we don't like these women over here; they're saying all these nasty things. But rather. I don't know, take more of a bird's eye view of, of the lay of the land, of what what's going on, how this term "turf" even came about, mm-hmm. and how the trans activism that's really, you know, in full bloom today is dealing with this transphobia that has existed historically and still today within small corners of feminism.
0: Yeah, so... The, I mentioned earlier that the term TERF is actually pretty new, despite the fact that there have been anti-trans feminists in the movement from the get go. So, Kristen, where did TERF come from? So the term is credited to
4: Australian blogger TIG who is also a cisgender woman. Um, and TikTok coined it as a neutral description of a particular group of activists that she felt, in her words, were colonizing radical feminist discourse.
0: Yeah, she says it wasn't meant to be a slur, but she is sure it can be perceived as one in the same way that some people might consider the words feminist or radical feminist to be slurs, depending on the tone and context and who's saying it. And so in that same vein, many of these women who are called TERFs definitely oppose the term, saying that it is a slur and that they prefer the term man-exclusionary-radical-feminist. But preferring the term man-exclusionary-radical-feminist also highlights their transphobia. Absolutely, because they are still, in calling themselves man-exclusionary-radical-feminist or MRFs, they're still calling trans women men. Exactly. Because that it falls under the same umbrella to them.
4: And this whole turf, merv, transphobia within feminism issue seems to have come to a head in 2014 when uh, there was a piece in The New Yorker by Michelle Goldberg writing about transphobic feminists and trans-feminists and sort of how they have obviously, like butt heads, how are they existing in these same spaces, especially in the context of growing trans activism. Um, and in response to that New Yorker piece, which we'll talk about in more detail later on in the podcast, Julia Serrano, who is author of The Whipping Girl, wrote in The Advocate, quote, from their point of view, they should be referred to as MRFs because they reject trans women, who they see as men but not trans men who they view as misguided women who have been brainwashed by patriarchal and transgender agendas. Needless to say, an overwhelming majority of transgender people rejected this framing of the issue. And Serrano writing that piece in The Advocate was clarifying all of that because she felt that the New Yorker piece didn't really outline clearly enough the the depth of the transphobia that a lot of these, you know, TERFs, these trans exclusionary radical feminists um, really embrace.
0: Yeah, well, and she was also arguing that Goldberg painted so-called TERFs in a much more sympathetic light than she did actual trans activists, which is something that we see across a lot of think pieces, for lack of a better word, that. Are around today, talking about these very same issues.
4: And by the same token, too, there is a concern among radical feminists who are not transphobic mm-hmm. that lumping all of this together in this way, in the way that the New Yorker piece and other pieces have, have kind of done of, of really muddying those waters, um, they've worried that it's casting a shadow on them, lumping all mm-hmm. radical feminists into. The TERF group. Yeah,
0: hashtag not all radfems. Exactly. Yeah, and so it is worth uh, clarifying, yes, that not all radical feminists are transphobic and that there are plenty of trans women activists who are feminists. These, you know, there are lots of Venn diagrams (laughs) going on, surprise, surprise, in the feminist movement. But uh, we looked over at theturfs.com to get some clarification on what a trans-exclusionary radical feminist is or does. Um, and they point out that TERFs, as they see it, assert that trans women are men and vice versa, uh, and that trans women can't actually be lesbians. Uh, they out trans people, whether they're co-workers, colleagues, whoever, and they make the assertion that the world would be a better place without trans people. See the example of... Bev Vondor, who's a big name turf activist and writer. Vondor said, they expect we'll be shocked to see statistics about them being killed and don't realize some of us w- wish they would all be dead. And Vondor's name is actually one that comes up when we look at sort of the history of that tension between feminism, radical feminism, and trans activists.
4: Yeah. So now is the time when we highlight a couple of not so savory moments in radical feminist history. So in 1973, at the West Coast Lesbian Conference, trans folk singer Beth Elliott was threatened and eventually excluded from the gathering of more than 1,200 lesbian women. And a group called the Gutter Dykes had leafleted the conference to protest Elliott's Inclusion,
0: And the charge was led, Caroline, by none other than who? By Bev Von Dore, who alleged or still alleges that Elliot had stalked her and threatened to rape her after Von Dore turned Elliot down when they were teens. And so this is really a lightning rod moment in the feminism. If we're going to have the dichotomy, if we're going to say the feminism versus trans movement, um, Because it really highlighted, hey, we don't like trans people or, hey, we need to support and include trans people. Well, and and kind of pulling out our our focus a little
4: bit, too, this is something that Serrano writes about in Whipping Girl in terms of uh, just transphobia in the 1970s and of trans people having a really hard time finding a welcoming space because you have within radical feminism this transphobia happening and then when it comes to the gay rights movement in the same way that Betty Friedan was pulling the lavender menace mm-hmm. the gay rights movement wasn't so open to trans people either because they were trying to position their platform mm-hmm. in more of a- away from gender identity and focusing it on sexual orientation and relationships so they were like we don't have a place
0: Anywhere, Yeah, so at the same time that the group, the Gutter Dykes, are leafleting the conference to protest Elliot's inclusion, keynote speaker Robin Morgan was blasting Elliot and trans women in general in her speech. She called Elliot an opportunist, infiltrator, and a destroyer. Morgan said, "'I will not call a male she. "'32 years of suffering in this androcentric society and of surviving have earned me the title woman.'" One walk down the street by a male transvestite, five minutes of his being hassled, which he may enjoy, and then he dares. He dares to think he understands our pain. And this is a refrain that, I mean, this is still going on. The the misgendering, the purposeful attempt to cause pain by misgendering trans people is something that still goes on. I mean, we saw it come out in full force when Caitlyn Jenner was on the cover of Vanity Fair. Exactly. But so in the wake of this speech and the wake and in the wake of the leafleting, Elliot gets on stage to perform, but the TERFs got violent, they were threatening her, and they jumped on stage to assault her. But again, not all feminists, not all lesbians, not all women of this movement felt the same way. Writing in the publication The Tide, which is a lesbian newsletter. One woman did speak up for Elliot. She wrote, This woman is insisting that Beth Elliot not be permitted to perform because Beth is a transsexual. Beth was on the San Francisco steering committee for the conference, a pan of the original group that gave birth to the idea. She's written some far out feminist songs. That's why she's here. No, we do not, cannot relate to her as a man. We have not known her as a man. She is a woman because she chooses to be a woman. What right do you have to define her sexuality? And I just thought that this was a perfect, as I said, lightning rod moment to highlight the division between turfs and non-turfs, basically, <laughs> and, and everyone else. And everyone else, yeah. Well, and and it
4: peddles so much in those same myths about trans people that we have talked about on past podcasts that they're. Really, just trying to deceive us and infiltrate and wear gender as a costume. Um, so, <laughs> it's just, it's so again and again and again reading about this, especially the history and obviously um, how it's still going on today. It's unfortunate to see people in the name of feminism really just recycling the same kinds of lies mm-hmm. that feminism ultimately is trying to dismantle.
0: Well, so, unfortunately though, that conference and uh, Beth Elliott's exclusion were not the only sour notes in the 70s. Um, we also have Olivia Records, uh, which was a woman's music collective in Los Angeles receiving hate mail and death threats for hiring a trans woman, Sandy Stone, as a recording engineer. And uh, Stone has written about how, you know, we were all having a great time. We were making music. We were working together for the feminist cause for women, supporting women and other lesbians and other feminists. It was great. And then a boycott and smear campaign organized by Janice Raymond eventually drove Stone out of the collective, which did attempt to defend her. They penned an essay for a lesbian publication saying that, hey, Sandy has decided to give up her male identity, and now she's faced with the same kinds of oppression that other women and lesbians face. She must also cope with the ostracism that all of society imposes on a transsexual Being like, hey, everybody has a past, but this is the present. We need to focus on the present. And we are all about supporting fellow women and fellow lesbians. That is not how people like Janice Raymond saw it. No, Janice Raymond saw it as, again,
4: essentially a guy deceiving and infiltrating a sacred female space. And, I mean, it's so unfortunate, too, because, you know, in the bigger context, Olivia Records, was a pretty incredible thing happening, if you consider how (laughs) today, but especially back then, how male-dominated the music industry was. Um, But silver lining, Sandy Stone would go on to write an essay, The Empire Strikes Back, a post-transsexual manifesto that became essentially the foundation of transgender studies around the world.
0: Yeah, and it also got people thinking. Uh, Robin Tyler, who was part of the feminist comedy duo Harrison and Tyler, uh, had been scheduled to perform at that same conference as Beth Elliott in 1973. And later in an interview, she reflected on that reaction to Stone. And she says, you know what's interesting? Rather than fighting who's oppressing us, turfs go after the most oppressed people instead of building a coalition. And that's just shocking to me. And Kristen, that's what you said earlier about um, the need to sort of come together and fight for the same thing rather than tearing each other down. Exactly. Um,
4: and then finally, we wanted to talk about the Michigan Women's, that's Women with a Y, Music Festival or MishFest, MitchFest. Uh, that was started in 1979 as a women-born women, again, women with wise event. And it is still intermittently held today. And basically, thousands of women would come, set up, camp, cook, take classes, and enjoy a safe space. There was one woman reflecting on how uh, incredible it would be to go to this festival where you would be out in the woods and it would be dark, but you didn't have to be scared of the dark because you were just surrounded by all of these other women who were wanting to have a good time. But no trans women have been allowed because of the notion that it would endanger that safe space and the sense of personal liberation that it offered. And that was something, too, that was brought up in that New Yorker piece by Michelle Goldberg. And Julia Serrano also commented on Mishfest because it has happened in recent years, right? And there have been trans activist protests outside of the festival basically saying this is not okay that we're not allowed to come share this safe space as well.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I think there were activists, but I think what was heavily reported on was when some trans activists responded to the trans exclusionary policy of the festival by defacing some property, spray painting some things, um, which was another way for turfs and others to point and say, see, this is Essentially, this is why we can't have nice things. This yeah, they're is why dangerous. Trans people are dangerous. Trans people are dangerous. Um, you're deceptive. You're mentally ill. And there's no reason that you should be included in an event for women with a Y, they say.
4: Now, when we get a little deeper into this trans-exclusionary radical feminist fight against against trans inclusion, a lot of it comes down to... This idea that trans women especially are over reliant on gender, are using gender as some kind of a crutch mm-hmm. to, again, to infiltrate and deceive.
0: Yeah, it's sort of an it's sort of an interesting circular argument about gender. Is it a social construction? Is it biological? What is it? Uh, writing in that New Yorker piece, Michelle Goldberg says trans women say that they are women because they feel female, that, as some put it, they have women's brains and men's bodies. Radical feminists reject the notion of a, quote, female brain. They believe that if women think and act differently from men, it's because society forces them to, requiring them to be sexually attractive, nurturing and deferential. In the words of Lear Keith, a speaker at Rad respond, femininity is, quote, ritualized submission. And so this is kind of the, the check no boxes issue. The you shouldn't you shouldn't feel compelled or compel others to say that you are female or male trans people are hurting themselves with surgery or hormones when they should just learn to accept themselves as they are. You're just playing into the binary. Gender doesn't exist. Female is a social construct. And that's an idea that Amanda Marcotte over at Slate picks up on when discussing writer Eleanor Burkett's argument that Caitlyn Jenner and other trans women constitute a threat to feminism. Now, it's worth noting that Amanda Marcotte and on the other side, Eleanor Burkett, these are just two people who are making these arguments. Plenty of other people have been part of this conversation. But this I thought the article over at Slate was a good highlight of the conversation. And Marcotte asks, why be suspicious of trans women's socially constructed gender then if female, quote-unquote female, is always a construct anyway? She says, and do you really believe it's just socially constructed if you're arguing for biologically women-born women-only spaces? So it's an argument that kind of just goes in a circle of like, well, wait. So if you're saying that it really is just a construct and that feminine women are just putting on a costume of femininity to appease the patriarchy, then how is the trans quote-unquote performance of gender and femininity any different than a cis woman's performance of gender and femininity? And why should trans women not be included in women-only spaces? Well,
4: I, I would think that in this pocket of radical feminism, most of us are doing it wrong in their eyes. Wouldn't you think? Because you would need to divorce divorce yourself of any outer trappings of femininity in order to truly achieve this this idea of feminism that they have
0: right yeah i don't know and and i mean kristen you mentioned muddying the waters earlier and i mean the things that we're touching on at the moment are they're not all from the same people. And I think that's what makes it complicated because some radical feminists are saying, divorce yourself from everything that is male and masculine and be androgynous. Some people are saying, embrace everything that is feminine and womanly in you. Some people are just saying, like, just turn away from men and just sleep with women or live with women and don't, you know, have any connection to men at all. So but not all of these different groups are saying the same
4: thing. I mean it's honestly mind-boggling mm-hmm. and seems to lead to dead ends whichever way you turn.
0: Yeah, and it's also it's also <laughs> I don't know how productive it is to tell people how to live and what to like. I mean I I think conversations about the patriarchy are obviously important and enlightening and I'm not sure that <laughs> <laughs> to me, it's akin to saying
4: the roof is leaking, so just burn down the whole house.
0: Yeah. Um...
4: But you know I love an HGTV metaphor. <laughs> let's renovate this feminist house. That's right. Well, you know, women are good at interior decor. <laughs> so in the first half of the show, we focused a lot on transphobia. But now, let's talk about trans activism, because... Trans activists are loud and proud, and transgender people are more visible than ever before. And actively fighting, and I mean, simply by living and being vocal, are, are fighting these turf stereotypes, circling around hate, fear, and exclusion. I mean, you have people like Laverne Cox and Janet Ma, Caitlyn Jenner, and Jazz Jennings to only name four who are putting human faces on the issue that that really didn't exist with this level of visibility at all in, say, the 70s or 80s.
0: Yeah, I mean, certainly trans activists are just as vocal as they always have been. But it's just now I feel like that they're being heard, that people are willing to say, "Okay, no, wait, what are you saying? Let's actually listen to this and uh, actually give you a chance to speak. Um, these activists are fighting for inclusion, yes, but they're also fighting for safety, for recognition of their right to exist and to be taken seriously. They're advocating for things like admission to women's only colleges and acceptance in spaces supposedly only for women, like we mentioned at the top of the podcast. They're also raising awareness about the number of trans people killed every year, which in the U.S. as of mid-August was at 15, according to an article in Time magazine.
4: And they're still fighting this stigma that being trans is a mental illness, that they're sexual deviants, that they're deceptive, or just that it's a passing phase. They'll change their minds. Because one common refrain among trans exclusionary radical feminists is that trans women suffer from something called autogynephilia, or sexual arousal at the thought of being female or having female genitalia. And this term was coined by a guy named Ray Blanchard, who's a retired psychiatry professor um, who used it to describe an erotic compulsion to become a woman rather than a conceived female identity. So again, I mean, it's just like framing them as deviants, as this just being a fetish, essentially.
0: Yeah, and some of the heroes of the turf movement or platform or position are those individuals who have transitioned and who then have come out and said that they regretted their decision and went back to living as a man or a woman. Um, these people are often cited by TERFs as saying, see, you just get a little therapy and it all gets straightened out in your head.
4: Oh, but that sounds so similar to conversion therapy, mm-hmm. gay conversion therapy, mm-hmm. where in those on the way opposite end of the spectrum where you have hyper conservative people who do elevate. People who have come out and then gone back in the closet, quote unquote, thanks to conversion therapy, they're elevated to say, oh, look,
0: see, see, it's just a phase. Yeah. When in reality, no one individual of any type of group can stand for an entire population.
4: And I should also clarify, too, the distinction between we're talking about gender identity in terms of the trans issue and sexual orientation with the gay conversion therapy. So a little apples to oranges, but nonetheless startling similarities between these two groups, which are ideologically on opposite ends of the political spectrum.
0: And a big aspect of trans activism, too, is fighting against actions that are specifically intended to oppress them, not just insensitivity or maybe a little ignorance uh, on the part of cis people, but things like misgendering or refusing to use the correct or preferred pronouns. Uh, this is big with writer Sheila Jeffries, turf writer Sheila Jeffries, who does refuse to use preferred pronouns. She writes that use by men of feminine pronouns conceals the masculine privilege bestowed upon them by virtue of having been placed in and brought up in the male sex caste. So there's no acknowledgement there that trans women are Women, There's still that uh, assertion that, no, trans women are just men who are putting on a costume.
4: And part of trans activism against cis sexism in society does involve, too, speaking out on things that they perceive as oppressive regardless of intention. So things like celebrations of cis women's bodies, and biology. So we did an entire podcast, for instance, all about this <laughs> period pride movement in quotes and a celebration of menstruation culturally, like we've kind of never seen before, really. Things like that. Um, things like the vagina monologues, there have been uh, on, some, on some college campuses, vagina monologue performances canceled because they're seen as trans exclusionary.
3: not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life.
2: PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865.
3: Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association member FDIC. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all.
2: Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI.
3: There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in,
0: And also things like the, quote, unquote, real women or real beauty ads that we've seen. We've seen a huge uptick in this from companies like Dove or Pantene who focus on this real womanhood, which is sort of an indirect throwback to the early Radfem claim of embracing true womanhood as the way to um, achieve true liberation. They draw links between, you know, how can you say that these women in this ad are true women what is a true woman?
4: Right. And, and this too, you know, gets to the body positivity sayings like real women have curves and things like that of stepping back and saying, wait, what do we really mean by real? And also within the healthcare scope, ignoring that trans men can get pregnant and also have periods and abortion, reproductive rights is a trans issue too, or holding women only events. That expressly exclude trans women or not admitting trans women to women's colleges. That's been a huge issue in the past few years.
0: Yeah. And so it's, it's these, it's this area, this area of, well, we don't mean to offend you or we don't mean to exclude you and trans people saying, well, but you're excluding me and offending me and oppressing me anyway, regardless of your intention. It's this sort of area that's getting a lot of coverage in the think pieces nowadays. People writing about feminism and trans inclusion or exclusion because a lot of writers, particularly cis women, have been very vocal about saying, not everything can be for everybody. Uh, you're just being too politically correct. You're being too sensitive. And they're essentially telling these trans activists to calm down, which we all know telling someone to calm down never works out well. Uh, I mean, there are plenty of people who wouldn't necessarily be called radical feminists otherwise, but who have still, by activists, earned that turf name because they say that these trans activists are taking things too far. One of those people is Bryn Margrad Monica Potts, who talked about the whole women's college issue in the New Republic in February 2015. She points out that four women's only colleges accept trans women and two accept trans men. And she, in her essay, which I thought was pretty reminiscent of the complaints that we've talked about over political correctness, Potts argues that women still like super duper need the confidence incubator that is the woman only college setting. And she says that erasing references to women, sisterhood and their bodies, or like you said, Kristen, canceling performances of the vagina monologues is indistinguishable from old school misogyny. So her, the crux of her argument is
4: that it should be okay that not everything all the time is for everybody. Um, but then she does go on to say that women's spaces and language are targeted, which is a pretty loaded term, are targeted by trans activists because women readily give up power. She writes, quote, women, especially young ones, hold power so delicately and uncomfortably they're ready to give it up as soon as someone accuses them of being selfish, which this was the off-ramp for me <laughs> in this piece where I don't agree with that at all. I think that saying that it's being targeted um, strategically like that is... is—I uh, Well, I'll just say I don't agree that it's being strategically targeted like that, because I think that also, again, paints trans people as devious rather than seeking safe spaces as
0: they've been seeking for so long. Yeah. So she she basically goes on to say that, hey, there's plenty of other liberal arts schools that are safe spaces for gender questioning students or, or sexuality questioning students, many of them being former women's only colleges, um... So basically, why don't you just go there and leave our women's only colleges alone, you trans people? And on a related note, there are some people concerned
4: about, you know, these these women who are not TERFs being labeled TERFs for, like Monica Potts is doing, raising, you know, a need for what she says, these sacred spaces, the sisterhoods and things like that. For someone like that to then be, by some activists, called a turf—that that is simply a weapon, also to silence women. So it's like, are we, are we really progressing the
0: conversation, or is everyone just trying to tell everyone else to shut up? What's going on? It kind of feels like everybody's telling each other to shut up. McDonald, which is a uh, pseudonym, by the way, was writing in the New Statesman, also in February 2015. And says that uh, the trans activists who are, like Potts was talking about, wanting to be included in women's only spaces are a small subset of extremists who are trying to impose their definition of reality and their political agenda on everyone. And McDonald, too, points out the whole vagina monologues cancellation issue, in addition to complaints about discussions of pregnancy and abortion rights and menstruation. So I think Potts and McDonald, the anonymous McDonald, are basically saying we should be able to accept trans people for who they are and also celebrate women's bodies and spaces and not be called TERFs because of it. Basically saying that those two things
4: can coexist. And, you know, that one issue that people like Potts and McDonald and a lot of just media outlets in general when reporting on this kind of issue uh bring up are uh people labeled TERFs having their appearances at college campuses or in public spaces canceled due to outcries from trans activists or just feminist activists too, who are like, no, get your hate speech away from me. Um and Julia Serrano, whom we mentioned earlier in the podcast um, wrote about this as well in her response piece in The Advocate to that New Yorker piece that really got a lot of people talking and thinking about this in 2014. And she said, you know, sure, turfs should be free to speak and assemble whenever, wherever, but an LGBTQ organization would be hypocritical to host performers who advocate for trans woman exclusion. And isn't a college that claims to protect students and faculty from gender-based discrimination facing a conflict of interest if it invites a speaker who says trans people are just sexually deviant? Yeah, good point. Yeah, good point. But in that advocate piece, one thing that Serrano really hammered home was that her far bigger concern with all of this is the media... And I think that we're part of this, Caroline, because we're talking about this exact thing. The media focusing so much and debating so much over this kind of trans activism rather than talking about the very real day-to-day experiences and discrimination and violence that trans people face. You know, one of the things that she was most distraught about with that New Yorker piece was that it simply posed this whole thing as a catfight of this group versus this group, where she was like, no, this is not, this is a distracting, no, this is distracting focus away from where the real attention needs to be placed in terms of actually improving trans people's lives. Mm -hmm. Because when we focus so much on this, it paints trans people as just out to take away everything, again, as being interlopers. Mm
0: -hmm.
4: So on the one hand, I think it was really important that we have this conversation about TERFs because of the way, you know, as we talked about at the top of the podcast, how the term, the acronym has taken on a life of its own and how a lot of people wield it without really understanding it. I think it's important to talk about that. But is there a danger of
0: talking about all of this too much? Well, do you mean that perhaps we should focus more on the individual people or the groups of people in the conversation rather than labeling people? I guess what I'm thinking is, <laughs> I, I'll,
4: I, I'll answer a question with another question. Oh. What I'm wondering is how do we reframe this conversation? that is very exclusionary focused of you have one group wanting to exclude these people and you have another group who, you know, is fighting against exclusion. What happens if we reframe this conversation to really focus in on inclusion? Mm
0: -hmm.
4: Because on the one hand, I think it's important for us to be able to talk about women's bodies. And to talk about menstruation, periods, vaginas, endometriosis, these kinds of things um, that we talk about on the podcast all the time. At the same time, too, you and I want to be as inclusive as possible, and trans lives matter. And we, you know, never want to disinvite trans people to the party because, you know, we want to build coalitions. Mm -hmm. So, how do we how do we make all of this inclusive? Can we do, or am I w-
0: wanting too many things at once? I think we can be inclusive. And I know that you and I have worked very hard to to be inclusive. And we have gotten many letters from trans listeners who say, hey, thanks for the acknowledgement that there are different types of bodies and that um, different types of people have periods or don't have periods. Um, I do think that including trans people in the conversation does not do away with the importance of talking about, like you said, women's biology, because especially when you take into the account the history of women being divorced from their bodies and women's biology being considered gross and dirty and too sexual, and we shouldn't talk about it. Um, So you and I are in sort of an interesting position of we talk a lot about health and biology and and sexual health and stuff like that. But we also talk about a lot of social issues like TERFs, like trans activism. Um, And so so that's sort of a long winded way of saying that I think both of these conversations need to happen and exist side by side and that perhaps some of our conversations and others uh, could be reframed to make sure that we do include all of those different types of bodies.
4: Well, absolutely, because by the same token, we have also received letters and Facebook comments and tweets from people saying, "Hey, you know what? When you're talking about, especially things like menstruation and periods, don't be so sexist about it. Mm-hmm. Recognize that you know trans men experience these things too, um, which we absolutely want to do. Well, I think one thing we can all agree on. Is that the turf
0: rhetoric is very harmful. Yeah, there's absolutely no reason to, why, why try to harm, why try to harm others emotionally, physically, mentally? Um, why would you out a trans person or, or a gay person or anyone? Why would you, why would you <laughs> target people? in order to cause pain and and I, I understand that some radical feminists have the perspective that anything tied to men at all ever is the enemy but that's ignoring the very real the very real fact that trans women are women. Well I also think that it really says a lot that,
4: since this really started bubbling up in the 1970s, especially to now, it's not like we've seen the kind of massive cultural sea change really embracing and advocating for turf platforms in the way that we have seen, especially in just the last handful of years, a legitimate cultural sea change in terms of recognizing and accepting um, trans people Mm -hmm. as people. And in terms of mainstream feminism, of doing a more concerted job of including trans people as well, and inviting them to the table, and working as allies for, you know, the issues that affect them. Yeah.
0: It's all a work in progress, Caroline it's a work in progress. I'm I'm really interested to hear from people. I know that there's aspects of this conversation that we didn't touch on. I mean, I I'm incredibly interested to hear from people from I don't, I don't want to say both sides of this <laughs> argument because I don't want to paint it as a catfight like uh like Goldberg did, but I'm interested to hear from listeners. I know a lot of you have opinions on this.
4: Well, and I think it's just so important to remember that like so many of the isms that exist, feminism also exists on a spectrum. Mm -hmm. You know, there is no one feminism and people often mistakenly paint feminism as wrong or misguided because they see this one pocket over here on the spectrum and assume that the whole thing is tainted because of it. Mm So with that, MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is where you can send your letters. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. We do hope to hear from you. And we've got a couple of letters to share with you
0: right now. Well, I have a letter here from Devin in response to our feminist anthropology episode. Devin says, I cannot thank you enough for doing a podcast on feminist anthropology. I studied anthro in college and I'm not an anthropologist now, but I do work for a feminist organization. Despite only spending one week in all of my years in school studying feminist anthropology and spending the rest of the time on the same judgmental Englishman, anthropology had a massive impact on my views as a feminist. Even if you don't end up using your anthro degree in a practical sense, you'll use it every day when you meet new people. Anthropology taught me the incredible skill of how to find meaning in the little things that build culture. Oftentimes the meanings we find show long-standing evidence of the patriarchy, which is amazing because then we know what to fight and work against. We can't change the culture of sexism unless we know what we need to change. Then there's the rare moment when we look at a ritual or a moment and find that all along it's been feminist and it's been beautiful. There's a definite subset of anthropology that is specifically feminist, but I also believe that anthropology is inherently feminist. Anything that makes you question the culture you live in in order to find the history and purpose of previously unquestioned actions is a feminist practice. I wasn't at all surprised to hear that most anthropology PhD students are women, but it still makes me feel good to hear that the subject I love and am incredibly grateful for is populated by these smart women. Thanks again for a great listen. Well, I've got a letter here from
4: Kirsten on young women's voices and glottal fry. She writes, I'm slowly working my way through your extensive series and recently listened to your episode, Are young women ruining American speech. I'm a 19-year-old female broadcast journalist for the U.S. Air Force. Hey, pretty cool, Kirsten. Part of our training is heavily concentrated on our speech patterns and tone of voice. A lot of young women have a much more difficult time with the course because of glottal fry that is just so ingrained in our vocal register. They can actually fail out or be reclassified if they can't unlearn it. You have to audition to book the job, And many young women are turned away if older women are judging the audition because their voices are simply too, quote, young, thin, and high. We're taught to fake deeper, more authoritative voices by slowing down and breathing deeper. The males have a much easier time of the course, really only having to master articulation and speed, while the women have a lot more to correct to be considered arable. Love your podcast. Well, thanks so much, Kirsten. That is fascinating. And you know what phrase I love? Guadal fry. <laughs> mm. Mm, delicious. Salty. <laughs> well, we can't wait to hear from you as well, dear listener. stuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address and for links to all of our social media as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one with links to our sources so you can read up on all this Uh, you could say complicated stuff we've been talking about, head on over to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.
3: This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life
2: should be boring, like banking.
3: not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life.
2: PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since
3: 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Pedigree. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it is closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter.